0: Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons.
1: Hello, loyal listeners. I'm Dr. Tom Varghese, a general thoracic surgeon at the University of Utah, who along with Dr. David Cook from UC Davis are the co-hosts of Same Surgeon, Different Light, part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Surgical Hot Topics series. We now have a special two-part episode that will air during the Christmas holidays where we the hosts will interview each other. In part one, I will interview Dr. David Cook. In part two, David will interview me. So let's begin. In part one, I have the unique pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Cook. Dr. Cook is the head of the section of general thoracic surgery at the University of California Davis Health System, task force chair of the Comprehensive Lung Cancer Screening Program, Vice Chair for Faculty Development and Wellness in the Department of Surgery and Associate Director of the Cardiothoracic Robotics Program. A native of Oakland, California, he went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and then went to Harvard Medical School and trained in general surgery residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, during which time he did a basic science research fellowship with Dr. Robbie Robbins at Stanford University. He then did his cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan, which is where I had the privilege of meeting this unique soul. He has held several leadership positions regionally and nationally, but I wanted to briefly touch on one, his passion project that started as a task force chair for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, which is now an official workforce, the STS Workforce on Diversity and Inclusion. This workforce has done amazing work with its responsibilities, including advising leadership on diversity and inclusion best practices, cross collaborating with other allied health professionals on these efforts, and the development of resources, including this podcast. Join me as we engage with Dr. Cook, reflecting on his path of excellence and his vision for the future in today's Same Surgeon, Different Life. We go ahead and get started with uh, your background, uh, David. Uh, where, where did you grow up? Uh, I mean, we, we, obviously the goal of this series is to find out how amazing leaders have come into the world of CT surgery, but uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood.
0: Hi, Tom, thank you very much for having me on today. I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to talking with you and and being on this exciting podcast. So I was born and raised in Oakland, California, um, in the East Bay of Northern California, and I'm a first-generation Californian. So my parents uh, came from Texas uh, during what we call the Great Migration, and that's during World War II. late mid thirties to late late thirties in World War II where many African-Americans to look for better economic opportunities uh, and really to escape Jim Crow, uh, moved from Texas, Louisiana and Oklahoma and came to California to work in, um, in some more job opportunities. And when, when the war effort came around, really shipbuilding uh, so that was Alameda San Francisco San Diego Los Angeles and um, after the war um, all those people stayed and really moved into areas like Oakland uh, and Richmond California and etc and so that's kind of how where we come from that's why sometimes I say things like y'all um, and the Texas drawl is because of uh, all my Oh, my aunts and uncles. Yeah, I don't buy that. You're
1: not a Texas kid, David. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what did your parents do? Were they in the medical profession?
0: No. So my dad was a doctor. He was a doctor of education. And uh, they were educators. So my mom was a teacher for most of my adult life, or most of growing up. Um, And my dad was an elementary school principal. And they both ultimately were elementary school principals in the Oakland public school system.
1: And, and did you have brothers and sisters?
0: Yeah, so my brother is a lawyer. Uh, he unfortunately passed away a few years back, and then my sister is a teacher as well.
1: Wow. So, it, 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 you know, I'm sorry to hear about your brother, but uh, it seems like you're an outlier then, David. Like, how in the world did you come into the world of medicine if well, if everybody was in the world of education?
0: Well, I'm the the youngest, so that means I'm the organ donor of the family. um, Oh, my
1: God, that's morbid. (laughs) I
0: I had to to be careful not to play contact sports because you don't want to bruise your kidney just in case your brother might need it. Um, So uh, really, um, I went into medicine. Uh, My mom uh, had a sort of a medical scare uh, when I was young, uh, about four or five years old. And so, really, kind of touch and go. And I really appreciated the all the care team, but you know, um, the physicians and doctors who cared for her and kind of brought her back to uh, normal. Really, kind of restored her health. And ever since then, I, I, you know, at a young age, at four, I really wanted to be a a, a doctor. Um, and then, you know, kind of, I can say this now, I didn't say this during my interview times, but um, there was a TV show called A Six Million Dollar Man. And um, and that was basically the Bionic Man. And uh, I, I really, that was my, my favorite TV show growing up. And I remember the montage, you know, the opening credits, you know, he, he was a test pilot and there was a, a sabotage, right? And his, his plane crashed. And um, they, then they, they skipped to, a picture of him in the operating room and he had all these surgeons and they, and the, the voiceover said, um, we can be, rebuild him. We can make him stronger, faster than ever before. And they showed the surgeons working to put him back together. And then ever since then, maybe he's six to eight years old, I wanted to be a surgeon.
1: Uh, I can honestly say, I have never heard anybody say that the $6 million man was the inspiration to pursue a career in surgery. So kudos to you, Doctor Cook. Well, I, I never
0: said that during interviews, <laughs> but now that I'm I'm board certified, I can say it now.
1: <laughs> Gotta love it. <laughs> so yeah, so you knew early on medicine, surgery, um, and so explain your path forward. I mean, you're growing up in Oakland, but then you ended up in Harvard. I mean, you're talking about. In terms of a clinical environment background, I mean you couldn't name two different places on the United States. So uh, tell me about your journey into the Hallett Halls uh, of Harvard. How, how, how was that inspiration come about? How, how did you end up there?
0: Yeah, so I went to Cal. So we call UC Berkeley Cal in California, um, and you know when I on the East Coast, they think I'm talking about like a four-legged animal. Um, but uh, we call it Cal uh, in C- California. And um, I was an immunology major. And um, I did research and did a research th- thesis with Dr. Marion Koshlin. And she was a, a, a really big influence in my life. Um, I jokingly called her boss lady because, you know, she, she, she was kind of kind of ran, ran the things in the lab and et cetera. And we were really polar, Opposites in many ways. Um, She was from a a wealthy family, middle class, of course. Um, She's white, I'm black. Woman, man. She was a heavy smoker. I don't smoke, Um, but uh, she was a a, you know gifted immunologist and academic, and she really kind of pushed me towards academics and uh, research and the scientific method, and uh, really went through sort of my applications and, and really pushed me to kind of uh, do to, to really push the envelope in regards to academics. And that was transformative. You know, I, and I think it's also key where your, your mentors and the folks who have great impact in your professional life don't necessarily have to look like you or, or, or be from your exact background. And so I went on to, uh, H, to Harvard Medical School and it was a kind of a, a culture shock sort of to some degree. That was the first private education that I ever encountered. All my family wanted me to, to stay in California. And then my great aunt said, you know, you got to get out of California and you got to explore new things. And so I went and did that and um, uh, really had a good educational time and, and really explored immunology a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So you go from immunology at Cal, uh, and then now you're at Harvard Medical School. Uh, your drive to surgery is still there. And then, of course, you go to surgical residency at Mass General. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the decision to pursue cardiothoracic surgery. How does that come about?
0: Yeah, so I really wanted to be a below diaphragm transplant surgeon. So kidneys, pancreas, and, and that type of stuff. And then my backup was sort of hepatobiliary um and um and that's why that's why i went into surgery really and i went to uh, mgh and my first sort of real surgical rotation was on the thoracic surgical service and i was um you know and this is pre-80 hour work week right so you're like you, you put your head down and you just kind of work 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 as an intern and and you know this is in the the, the late 90s you know of thoracic surgery. So, you know, p- patients were relatively sick on the floor. And um, uh, Hermes Grillo, who at the time was uh, uh, either chief of thoracic or had transitioned out with Dr. Matisse being chief, um, had just done a tracheal resection reconstruction. And, you know, as an intern, you're, 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 you're used to perhaps being seen, but definitely not heard. And, you know, if, if a professor talks to you, uh, you probably did something wrong. And he actually uh, sat me down and drew on a piece of paper uh, exactly what he did and really took that time. to sort of teach me uh, about the, the complex operations that he did that day and how to take care of that patient uh, post-operatively. And that really sort of resonated with me, you know, being a, 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 a child of, of educators to, yeah, well, maybe this is a good profession for me. And uh, the fellow, uh, it was Dr. Simone Ashiku and he's a uh, head of thoracic at uh, Oakland Kaiser now. And he's, he really pushed me, hey, you gotta you know, think about thoracic surgery and going into, into CT and you know, talk to Dr. Batiste and talk to others uh, and say that you're interested and, and it, the rest is sort of history.
1: That's incredible. I mean, um, for a listener, I mean, to, to have anybody of the stature, but Dr. Grillo reach out to a trainee uh, that's, that's an amazing story. Um, and for our listeners, um, probably the next step in this journey is where you and I cross paths. Um, the, both uh, David and I trained and did our CT surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan. But that was a little bit of an odd departure for you as well, because usually those who train at Harvard uh, or in that system stay in Boston. So tell me a little bit about the decision process for you to say, no, I, I've, I've learned here. Now I want to go to my next learning opportunity. How, how did that decision come into play?
0: Well, I heard that you were at Michigan, so I knew. <laughs> Don't uh, believe a word about that. <laughs> I had to get on training and, 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 and head, head west. Oh, there um, you go. <laughs> um, I, I, was, uh, I was impressed with uh, the diverse clinical opportunities at Michigan. Uh, and then also the mentorship and educational experience that would be there with folks like um, uh, Mark Oringer and Rick Prager, uh, Ed Beauvais. And uh, then you had at the time sort of young, um, up and coming folks uh, like Andrew Chang and uh, Alan Pickens and Chris Law. And I thought th- that this would be a great opportunity. And then you know when I interviewed with Dr. Oranger, I asked him, are you gonna be retiring anytime soon? And he, and he said, he, he promised, after you leave, I'll retire. So, <laughs> I, so I figured that was a, a safe bet. Uh, to continue that. And so um, uh, moved on to uh, uh, Michigan. And I have to say that the way I sort of view clinical care, um, especially with the esophagus patients, um, but really for all patients, is through the lens of how Dr. Orenger viewed or views clinical care, you know, how he rounds and the attention to detail and uh, just sort of looking at every facet of what's going on with the patient. That's how I sort of carry that uh, into uh, my practice.
1: That's incredible. And then of course, you then went from Ann Arbor, Michigan to uh, where you've been uh, throughout your academic career uh, at UC Davis in in Sacramento. Now, you know, we're amongst friends, and we have friends amongst our listeners. That was not an easy job to take on. I mean, it was a rebuild job in many respects. Could you explain the thought processes you had in terms of embarking on a position like that, rather than joining like a well-established practice where your path may have been a lot easier than you ultimately ended up doing?
0: Yeah, so I've been at UC Davis for 12 years. And um, it's funny, someone just I was talking to someone, I'm the vice chair for faculty development and wellness here now. And um, uh, one of the faculty were like, well, you're a UC Davis insider. And um, I said, well, I feel, I kind of feel like a, a sort of a outsider here. And, and then I caught myself because it reminded me what someone once said to me. And they said, if your leader uh, is still wearing the same beret that they wore uh, when they were a rebel, then you're in trouble. So, which, so you know, at some point you become leadership and you become management, and you're no longer that rebel that that you you first started off. I had good sort of mentorship here uh, at UC Davis when I first got here. Uh, my division chief uh, was uh, uh, Dr. Niles Young, uh, who many cardiothoracic surgeons, especially on the West Coast, uh, as well as uh, who are involved in global health, know Dr. Young quite well. And then also the general surgery uh, department leadership uh, here was very supportive of me. And then also UC Davis alums, um, so to speak uh, or Western thoracic surgeons um, were very supportive like Dr. John Benfield, who's a past SDS president spent uh, most majority of his career at UCLA but was also at UC Davis prior to me, prior to me coming here um, really was very supportive. And really it, it was a, a sort of a building situation Um, especially as thoracic surgery is is more cogent on the East Coast and Midwest than say uh, on the West Coast per se. Um, uh, Notwithstanding Seattle and the amazing things that Doug Wood has accomplished there uh, and uh, San Francisco and amazing things that David Javalance has accomplished there. But specifically in the Central Valley and the large swaths of Northern California uh, which, basically, the size of Western Virginia, uh, which is our UC Davis area, uh, it took a little bit of reimagining, and sort of my personality is a personality of sort of building and bringing in resources to a community uh, that reflect all the places that I've been uh, in, throughout my career, and so I, I enjoy that sort of intellectual challenge. No,
1: oh, that, that that's incredible, and would you say, David, that? that- that's probably um, uh, the accomplishments that you're most proud of? I mean, the, the, all the things that your thoracic surgery team has accomplished here in Sacramento?
0: Yeah, uh, our, our motto is a, a quality of great quality, meaning that we can provide our, our patients of the Central Valley the same quality of care that they provide at University of Utah or, or Michigan or MGH where, where I did my training. Um, and so that's a proud moment for me. Um, also, developing our I-6 program and graduating uh, two individuals who we retain on as faculty and one who's my partner in general thoracic surgery um, is a, a, a proud accomplishment. And then the third, I think, was the establishing our, our lung cancer screening program here. And that's because, you know, we're catching people with early stage disease who would have just been minding their own business until their tumor got symptomatic and knowing that we potentially have cured them uh, or provide them with potentially curative surgery or other treatments, right? Uh, Based on a a lung cancer screening program, that's another accomplishment. Uh,
1: That's incredible. Um, I I wanted to take a moment now uh, in the time that we have left to really deep dive into some issues uh, that I know that uh, many of them that you're very passionate about, Uh, but you know, First thing is, you know, uh, you and I have known each other personally for close to 15 years. uh, And I know how much effort, commitment, dedication, hard work it's taken to get to where you are right now. Um, You and I are minorities. Um, Obviously, uh, you're African American, you're an underrepresented minority. Um, Any advice on how you've navigated uh, the world in in the sense that how do you respond to the naysayers? Um, you know, the blatantly racist, uh, uh, that those who say that, uh, that, that no matter what you've accomplished or whatever you've said or done, uh, that it's never given the due, uh, you know, tribute or the due credit. How, how, how have you evolved a strategy to, to navigate in those waters?
0: Yeah, I think it gets easier as you get older, right, as you get more established and you develop a track record. Um, people are, are, are less likely to give you shade about being in the room. I, I think it's important um, to, uh, you know, uh, look at a few things. One is there, there's a, a cliche that you you can't be what you can't see, right? And that ends up being a, a, a negative self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if there's not too many people of color or people look like us and in a a specialty, um, then you don't see those people, then you feel, well, I'm not gonna go in that specialty. And therefore it just can't can't, self fulfills that prophecy. Um, I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and I wanted to make that happen. And so that means I sought out individuals who could help me make that happen. And that included uh, mentors, many of whom didn't look like me um, and were, were from different backgrounds, but had specific interest uh, in my success. You know, uh, folks like, you know, Mark Oringer or, or Richard Prager uh, or Chris Law or Andrew Chang and, and Simona Shiku and, and, and others. And then uh, you do come, across, and yourself, like Tom, you've been very supportive of my career and and I've been able to look at all the mistakes you've done and then avoid the it. <laughs>
1: advantage of coming a year behind
0: me. <laughs> yeah, or, or you make all the people angry. And then by the time I come up, all they're just like spent and worn out. Got a little bit. And then you come across folks who, who look like you and, and also support you. Uh, and people like Bob Higgins and, and um, uh, Michael Smith and, and Alan Pickens. And so um, if you create your sort of tribe, so to speak, of people who have your best interests in mind, who serve as mentors, but also sponsors, right? Who pick you to do committees and things like that, uh, then you could be successful. Um, and so um, I've been a minority all my life. So I can't then become self-conscious about being the only person in the room. Uh, I have to still be successful, right? You, you have to be successful. And then what you do, you, you pay it forward and you help, uh, other individuals, including people who look like you, uh, to be successful and and uh, help help them navigate the system and make it easier than it was for you.
1: That's amazing. And and part of this journey that you've uh, accomplished is the fact that, as we kind of alluded to in the beginning, you've had the opportunity of growing up and living in many communities, um, and the communities are starkly different. I mean, growing up in Oakland. Uh, Then you were in Boston for your formative years. Then you went to Ann Arbor. Then you went to Sacramento. I mean, you you could pick, you know, four different communities that couldn't be more different on a map. Uh, Any tips to our young faculty members as they go to new communities or navigate? You know, how do you, uh, you know, achieve what you've achieved in these diverse environments? Any tips that you can offer to our listeners?
0: Yeah, uh, two things is, is, you have to understand what's important in your life. And then how do you make those important things successful? So one thing that's important to me is family, right? And so I have a, a, a wife and daughter who are, 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 are sort of my top priorities. And so, you know, as Dr. D, Michael D uh, once said to me, uh, uh, if mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy, right? So, and then you can insert whoever you want in there, daddy or daddy, <laughs> um, but um, you're, you're, the, the bottom line is that your, your, your significant other has to be happy in order for your life to be happy. And so that means those geographic areas are areas that my, um, my family can feel um, included and, and, and happy in. Second is your job um, has to be have the the ingredients to make you a success. So that means a supportive leadership, a supportive administration, uh, the ability to provide you with uh, uh, clinical acumen. Uh, if you are taking an academic job, an the ability to 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 do research successfully. Um, and so your job, the best job, may not be in the geographic location that you grew up thinking about, right? And uh, you can pick the perfect geographic location uh, that you always dreamed about, but then your job is awful. And then you are unhappy and then your family's unhappy. So the key is, is to pick sort of a, 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 a good job. Uh, and then that job should be in a place that your family could be okay with and happy with. And it, it may not be what you envision when you're like six years old or something like that. Um, now the second is, is you have to understand culture and the regional culture that you're in. And so you can't just go in there guns a blazing and say, this is how we did it uh, where I trained. You have to understand the culture that's on the ground and how do you fit within that culture? If the culture needs to be changed, what nuances are required to, to, to effectively change that culture and develop allies and comrades as opposed to adversaries. Even people who view you as an adversary after understanding their perspective and where they're coming from and then relating and finding commonalities to to relate to, uh, there's a good chance they'll they'll no longer be your adversary.
1: That's that's amazing. Um, I wanted to pivot now and talk about um, one of your most recent accomplishments uh, in the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. I mean, you're the, chair of the STS workforce on diversity and inclusion, which uh, for our listeners actually started off as a task force. Um, what were the challenges and opportunities um, that, you, that you saw? Uh, because on one hand, you know, as the minority in the room, when somebody reaches out to a minority and says, hey, we have a diversity and uh, you know, inclusion effort that we need you to lead, you know, obviously you're like, well, this is one other additional thing on top of all the other diversity and inclusion efforts I'm already doing. But on the other hand, you embraced this opportunity and you saw some certain opportunities and challenges with this position. Could you kind of relate to our listeners about what you saw and how you navigated that path for this workforce?
0: Sure. So I'm active in a few organizations. There's only a few organizations take a lot of my sort of non-assigned time and SES is one of them if I'm active in an organization it's because that organization has exhibited inclusiveness to me. So uh, they have demonstrated that they want my opinion they want my, my expertise and, and efforts and, the, and, and SDS is one of those organizations. Um, so this task force started a few years back at the beginning of uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Prager's uh, presidency and he asked me if I would chair this task force And he he gave me some names of individuals to be on the task force, but gave me carte blanche to uh, bring in other individuals. And if I could, would do this and and create a climate survey to to query our membership and the other activities that we felt that would be necessary. And I was honest with Dr. Prager, and I and I said to him, "Look, you you meeting the 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 specialty and organization." May not like some of the things that we uncover, um, whether it's viewpoints from our membership, uh, whether it's responses to the survey, um, whether it's sort of strong opinions on either side of, of the spectrum, um, and I just want assurances that when we uncover these things, that we push forward uh, with our efforts. And, and not be discouraged, but also that um, the, the face of this task force and the leadership of this task force would not be held to suffer from these troops, right? And you don't kill the messenger, so to speak. Um, <laughs> don't
1: kill the messenger, yeah.
0: We got those assurances uh, from Dr. Prager and the SDS leadership. Um, the other thing is I am a believer that to achieve diversity and inclusion, it needs to be a, a top-down effort, and not necessarily a grassroots effort. Meaning that leadership has to view it as important. Wherever organization you're at, that the or, the leadership of that organization must view it as important in order to get uh, everyone down the ladder to buy in. Right. That
1: that's a that's an interesting take, David, because that's not the popular mantra out there, right? The popular mantra out there is, oh, this is a grassroots and we'll rise up and everything will change in the culture. But you're actually pointing out that without, without that buy-in from the highest levels, a lot of those efforts are doomed to failure. Is that a correct way of stating that?
0: Yeah, because it, it's, so you do need grassroots uh, at, at, for, for any quality initiative. Um, but uh, it's human nature to say, my boss, doesn't view this as important, or if my boss doesn't think that this is what I need to do uh, in order to, uh, spe- to be successful in this organization, meaning I need to mentor underrepresented individuals in, in, in our organization, uh, I need to promote uh, individuals, I need to provide them with uh, opportunities for success, and that I, I view cognitive diversity as something that's important, um, then, then what's in it for me to buy in to, to make it happen, right? And so because of that, we've, we have uh, SDS board of directors and past presidents uh, on our now workforce and at that time task force. And that showed to everyone that this is an important effort um, by the organization and by our specialty really. Um, and it led to the success of the task force, I think.
1: Yeah. I wanna talk about the climate survey. Um, you know, um, there's a couple of, for, for our, uh, our listeners, there are a couple of publications that came out in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, really detailing both the methodology as well as your findings. Um, and uh, the, the most recent paper obviously was published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2019. Um, there, there's obviously the natural questions that you ask, but to me, the surprising thing was the comments Which um, you know, so I'll read a couple of these comments. Uh, And again, I was shocked because, again, you think physicians would know more, or maybe it's just my ignorance on this. But so here, here's here's a couple for the listeners. Here's a couple comments. Um, uh, You know, uh, here's one comment from from a respondent: Um, White males are currently being discriminated against in admission to college med school and residency programs, exclamation point. CT surgery should be a meritocracy. Uh, as if all of a sudden, because we're paying attention to other people in the world around us, that somehow the meritocracy in CT surgery got affected. And, and you guys, and the authors, you, the, the writing group that you led, David, you, you called this myth out. But, but here's another comment. Um, I do not believe barriers exist the myth of the necessity of diversity and inclusiveness is political correctness on steroids. W- were you surprised by by some of these comments that, that you received on the climate survey?
0: I was not. And uh, so the comments that you're reading are the comments that are okay to print, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that, that ended up in the publication. Um, so, uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I I think there's are there are prevalent myths about diversity, right? One is the myth of meritocracy, and diversity somehow dilutes meritocracy. And as you know, look at yourself and and uh, your colleagues. You know who is more successful than you, right? Who are more successful than my uh, colleagues, whether it's Leah Backus at Stanford, where, whether it's Nate Ev- Ev- Evans at, at Jefferson, right? Um, uh, Rob Merritt at Ohio State. Um, these are successful individuals. Um, and if they are in the room, they're not there because of their because they are tokens. They are there because they have exhibited success, right? Um, So because you see someone, why not? So you look at a a panel at an annual meeting, right? And uh, if the panel is all women, we make a big deal out of it. Oh, wow, it's all women. Well, 50% of the population are women, right? Which means about 50% of the country's geniuses are women, right? so right. why 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 well the, the, the you look at the nobel laureates this cycle right many of whom are women right so why should we make a big deal that a panel should be all women right so that's one myth is the the the, the myth of meritocracy that somehow diversity challenges that the second is that the the myth of pr- political correctness right again 50% of of uh, med school classes are women, yet only 20% of our cardiothoracic training programs are women. And I believe, you know, uh, this could be uh, inaccurate, but I believe it's about seven, seven to 10% of board-certified uh, cardiothoracic surgeons are women. That's correct. Yep. Now, those numbers are actually improved, believe it or not. And, however, if we don't improve upon this, then we will have a brain starvation of our specialty, right? Especially if fifty percent of the medical class are women. So what we need is cognitive diversity. We need perspectives, um, and it has been shown in um, in in the private industry, business industry, that cognitive that perspectives from different backgrounds, including underrepresented minorities uh, and women, companies have better return on investment and, and better profit margins to the point where Goldman and Sachs will only back IPOs of companies that have um, women or minorities on their board, right? Um, they, they understand that and, it's t- and we healthcare can benefit from that, especially with all our disparities that we have in healthcare um, and, and other factors that need improvement. That's one thing. And then the second is those opinions are reflective of strategies of divisiveness that are used to pit individuals against one another, right? Instead of uh, having a sort of a a collective uh, cooperation and improvement for the community, um, it's been a strategy throughout the years of of pitting one group against the other. And that's where you have the quote-unquote reverse racism concept uh, that if one group has to have the chances to, for uh, equity, then somehow another group has to suffer. And that is a, a mythology that has been perpetuated throughout the years.
1: No, that, that, that's amazing. And, um, and for our listeners, it's interesting that uh, we're recording this session on the eve of the presidential election. Um, and even though it's been very, very challenging over the last several years, um, maybe it's kind of like what you said when you embarked on this mission with the task force, which became a workforce is the first step towards change is uncovering all these things, you know, bring shed light onto some of these myths and, um, you know, bring out all the opinions out there, no matter how ugly it is. Because unless we bring all this up, there's not going to be a successful strategy to navigate this is, is that a correct way of framing things david yes
0: yeah, so you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable right so you and i have spent many years being uncomfortable right? <laughs> exactly so you, you walk into the room and you're the only one that looks like you um you know a few uh few months ago i repaired someone with esophageal perforation. you know they were an extremist and um, and we restore them to health and the, the next day I'm rounding on on that individual and he said to me I thought you were the orderly and
1: <laughs> you mean the patient who you saved the wow right.
0: <laughs> Jeez. and but you know I didn't like freak out and you know go into a corner and play over the rainbow and a ukulele or anything you know yeah, you know, I, I I told them like first of all, no one uses the word orderly anymore. You know, it's not 1950, and and two like how did you think I was the the orderly when I'm like giving orders to everybody, right? And so um, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So and that's not easy for leadership, right? So most of our leadership uh, are. Majority individuals and and most of them are males and they've been in situations where most people in the room look like them right their teachers and instructors look like them, and so the environment is comfortable right and really no one likes having tough conversations. Um, And I think most of us, we all have our uh, implicit biases right very few of us are actually racist all of us have implicit bias, right? But very few of us are racist. So you could be in leadership and, you know, m- most of us have either in medicine have, are naturally empathetic or have learned empathy. And when you have someone across from you who is telling you, wow, uh, the person whose life you saved thought you were the orderly, that could be uncomfortable for them, right? If Uh, uh, you have a female resident and no one calls her by Dr. Smith, but they just call her Jane. Dealing with that can be uncomfortable, right? Um, if, uh, someone is uncomfortable, if someone says, I don't want to be seen by that, um, individual because they are wearing a hijab, um, addressing that situation can be uncomfortable, right? Um, So, or you're in a match meeting, a rank list meeting and one of your faculty says, well, you know, uh, this candidate says that they they volunteer in uh, Black Lives Matter and um, uh, White Coats for Black Lives. I'm not sure we want that sort of element here. Addressing that, can be. <laughs> And saying that in front of you, that's great. <laughs> yeah. uh, and these are hypotheticals, but addressing that can be uncomfortable if you have never had to address that before, Yeah, right? And uh, we're, we're all, most of us are empathetic creatures. Um, and like I said, most of us aren't racist, even though we all have implicit bias. And so it's easy if you're a leader who's never been in those situations growing up to stick your head in the sand and say, well, let's... Make it a grassroots thing and have you know you know uh tom figure it out um but that's the the price of leadership is is to be uncomfortable and uh we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable if we want to move the needle if we want to progress forward and if we want to stay relevant
1: that's an amazing perspective um You know, for our listeners, obviously, um, we're a little time constrained because David and I could be talking all day. Uh, But in the time that we have left, David, I mean, you've accomplished so much in your incredible career. And and obviously, uh, you know, the the horizon is wide ahead of us as well. Um, Are there any words of wisdom or creed or mottos that you follow in your life or things that you keep in mind? As you embrace new opportunities, as you lead movements, as you lead efforts, as you're in your leadership positions, any any words of wisdom that you can impart to our listeners?
0: Yeah, I think what has kind of pushed me forward is the the lack of cynicism, right? So uh, I can I can I, I often pretend to be cynical. I like to crack jokes. I I, I believe I'm I'm a I'm a firm Believer in the religion of snarkiness, right? And as uh, you follow me on Twitter, I oftentimes snark control uh, folks. Um, but the reality is is that if if you're gonna if you if you went into healthcare, no matter who you are, if you made that decision to go into healthcare, by definition, you are not a a fundamentally cynical person. Now training is difficult, and we go through the gauntlet and. Uh, Sometimes after we uh, get through that gauntlet, we, many of us are cynical, but our fundamental nature is that, uh, that brought us into the gauntlet to begin with is a lack of cynicism. And so when addressed with a problem or an issue, I don't like to complain about it. I may complain about it in sort of a, a a snarky band of brothers sort of way, Um, but fundamentally, you have to look at what can I do to fix it. What are the solutions? Uh, what are the innovations? I'll look over to the next person and say, "What, what, what do you think we should do?" Right. So, I'll I'll, I'll like that to be in the operating room, and you have a patient who's bleeding, uh, and you need to fix it. Right. You don't have the luxury to say, "Well, I'll come back to this in a few days." Um, or, you know, let's see what happens. Either you fix it or that patient dies. Not to be dramatic or whatever, but that's the reality of cardiothoracic surgery, right? That's, 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 That's our specialty. So we are our naturals in the OR when it comes to that. This has to be fixed. We need to fix this. We need to fix it now. Why not translate that to our professional careers outside of the OR, right? And that's why when Dr. Prager came to me and said, could you lead this task force? I said, sure, uh, because this, this needs to be fixed. We need these perspectives in our specialty. Our specialty would benefit from uh, these perspectives and our leadership uh, within the STS wants uh, these new voices uh, in our specialty. So let's see what we can do. What innovations, what can we do? Let's bring in different perspectives within the task force. So representatives from the women in thoracic surgery, um, representatives from the American College of Cardiology, uh, representatives from the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association, uh, all these uh, TSRA. So, all these Thoracic Surgery Residents Association. So all these different perspectives, and let's see what we can do and make things happen. I think we've been pretty successful. I think we've gotten good feedback and especially from our young people uh, who have not yet committed to cardiothoracic surgery, but are, are looking for this, the surgical home for them. And, and I think we're making inroads in that.
1: that, that that's, a, that's amazing. Um, uh, and, and for our listeners, I, I also know David well enough that uh, uh, you're a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Is that correct, David? Yes. Um, yes. And, and uh, you shared with me um, uh, these these lyrics from uh, uh, what, what you called your theme song, which I'll, I'll share with all the listeners right now, unless you know the words by heart, David. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so what David shared with me ahead of time is his theme song is from, from Bruce. It's uh, from the song, The Land of Hope and Dreams. And the lyrics, which really resonated with yours, uh, I said, this train dreams will not be thwarted. This train faith will be rewarded. Uh, and I hope that for our listeners, that um, you got a sense of that through, through this amazing interview, as I said, that we could be going on for hours, uh, just picking the brains of an amazing individual. But on behalf of all of our uh, listeners, uh, Dr. David Cook, thank you for the opportunity to connect today on Same Surgeon, Different Light.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. This is uh, really good to, to, to speak with you, as always. Um, I'm glad you're not telling me on what Tell me what patients to round on. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, me all of the it's still like PTSD. All, all the call holidays. right? <laughs> and then uh, making me cover the fort while you go to all the exciting meetings. Oh, there uh, you so go. We're, we're, we're no longer with that anymore. So that's good.
1: I appreciate it, David. Thanks so much. All right.
0: All right. Thanks. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, The Face of CT Surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.